Oral questions by members? Member for Peace River South. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. The, the latest real estate numbers are showing the housing crisis is continuing to worsen under this government. In fact, the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board says now that a benchmark home in that region is up to $1.7 million. That's a 40% increase from last year. In Surrey, the average price is nearly $2 million now for an average home. But you know what the most insulting part of all that is for families of British Columbia? It's that yesterday, this NDP government voted in favour to give themselves a $40,000 pay raise for the Premier and his Cabinet colleagues. And in fact, in fact, Mr. Speaker, to add insult Members. to injury, every single NDP member stood up yesterday to make that retroactive for another year. So imagine that. Every single one of them stood up to give another $10,000 into the Premier's pocket on top of the almost $40,000 they've added. Members, let's listen to the question, please. Extra money, extra taxpayers' money going into the pockets of the NDP cabinets and this Premier. So a very, very, you would think, simple question. Why is the NDP more focused on filling their pockets even going back and taking money out of from last year rather than dealing with the skyrocketing prices that are affecting people around British Columbia today. Here, here. Attorney General. Thank you. Honourable Chair, uh, uh, some important numbers uh, being released today by my colleague, uh, the Minister for Jobs. 100,000 people moved to British Columbia in the last year. 100,000. A 60-year high in migration to our province. Now, so there are some good reasons for that. There are some good reasons for that. Our economy is leading Canada. We managed COVID and kept schools open for families. There's an opportunity and success that people can find here in British Columbia. But it brings with it challenges, and the member has raised one of them. We have housing supply that is not keeping up with population. And uh, I am working hard with uh, the Minister for Municipal Affairs to reach out with municipalities. In fact, I'm speaking with uh, him and uh, Metro Vancouver uh, today on this very issue. We're working to identify ways to support municipalities to get more housing built. We're having some success, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, we are setting records for the uh, amount of housing that is being built in this province. We have uh, 47,607 units that were uh, built in 2021. That's an all-time high, which is very good news. But, but we have a lot more work to do, and I thank the member for his important question. Member for Peace River South, supplemental. Well, I, I do appreciate that the minister is acknowledging the NDP failures of not keeping up with supply and demand in the province when it comes to building housing. It's not just me saying that. In fact, the, uh, the NDP friends in the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has even come out and said that this government has failed to deliver the affordable housing units that they have been promising this people in this province. In fact, you look at Surrey alone, renters renters in Surrey were promised a renter's rebate. 
two straight elections now, not only they, but every renter in this province has been promised that renter's rebate, and now rent is $270 more a month just in Surrey. So a renter's rebate was promised. They failed to deliver on that, but instead yesterday, as we know, the NDP had no problem giving themselves a raise and making that retroactive to last year. So since it seems to be good enough for the NDP, will they stand in the House today and say, since they're working on the renter's rebate, will they now make that retroactive for the renters in BC? Attorney General. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Well, if, if I were that member, I wouldn't uh, compare government records on housing, frankly. Now, members, in members, members, Attorney General. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. So in uh, 2012, when Kevin Falcon was the finance minister, I think it's important to talk about records. When he was finance minister, this was the assessment in 2013 after he'd been at work for a year. After a small contraction in 2011, BC housing starts improved by 4% in 2012. However, home construction has been notably weak in the latter half of 2012, with starts posting declines of 2.8% in the July to September quarter and 14% in October to December. We posted quarterly contractions in the final two quarters of the year to suggest further weakening in BC home building going into 2013. Now, Honourable Speaker, contrast that with the contrast that with this year. In 2021, housing starts increased by 25.6% to 47,000. Reflecting a 35.2% increase in permitting for single detached Members. dwellings. Let's and a 19.8% increase for multiple dwelling buildings. In 2012, 1,948 purpose-built rental registrations. 1,948. In 2021, 13,133. Opposition House Leader. Well, uh, th thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. I, I, among the, uh, the statistics that the, that the minister just rattled off, there's a couple important ones that he's neglected to mention. Under, under the NDP's watch, under this government's watch, we have the highest housing prices in, in British Columbia's history, and we have the highest rent increases that British Columbians have ever seen. And this was the government, this was the party that was going to solve affordability, and especially housing affordability. It's been an abysmal failure on this government's watch. Now, while, while, the, while, the, while the NDP cabinet was busy uh, providing themselves with a, with a pay raise, and as we've, we've, we learned yesterday, it will be retroactive to last year, a retroactive pay raise for cabinet, students are being forced to, to camp outside just to attend their university. Daniel Drury is a student who was uh, forced to buy a van in order to have a place to live while he studies here at the University of Victoria. He says, and I, I quote, I've been surprised by how many people have done it or know someone who's done it. There's definitely uh, times where I've been like, oh my God, why am I doing this? End quote. If the NDP's housing plan was working, then students like Daniel wouldn't be forced to sleep in a van. After five years of this NDP government, how is it that students are forced to experience homelessness just to attend their university? Attorney General. Honourable Speaker, the, the only thing that would be more profoundly ironic is if this member asked a question about ICBC. 
almost five times the amount of student housing they built at just the University of Victoria in the whole 16 years they were in wow. government. Yeah. In one project. One project. 5,860 units of uh, student housing, and we're just getting started, Honourable Speaker. Opposition House Leader Supplemental. Oh, well, th thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, CC, the CCPA has said over and over and over over the last, uh, the last number of years that the NDP are counting homes that haven't even been opened yet. They, they haven't. They haven't been opened yet. And, you know, this government is really good at creating the illusion of action. You know, they, they talk often about the uh, of, uh, student housing that they've created in, in Kamloops at TRU. They, they, there was a big, huge announcement of, uh, of, of, of hundreds of additional units that were created. But, Mr. Speaker, the one, the one detail that was missing was what the government did was they forced the university to acquire an existing apartment building, which already had been providing student housing for the past 30 years. There was no, no increase in, in housing units. And so at TRU and at UVic and at universities all across this province, there are countless numbers of students who don't have the housing that they need. And instead, instead of this government putting students first and helping students put a roof over their head, this, this cabinet over here, supported by all of the backbenchers, endorsed, endorsed a wage increase for cabinets that's now retroactive order. to last year. Shame on this government. Shame on this government. So again, again to, uh, to, to the housing minister, how can the Premier and the Cabinet possibly give themselves a pay raise retroactive to last year while they're leaving students flapping in the wind when they're trying to get an education? Attorney General. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. I mean, the member knows this housing is real. The member knows that people are moving in. And you know how I know that, Honourable Speaker? Is he and his colleague... Member, member... Member, you have already asked your question. He, he and his colleague write letters to me, letters of support for the housing that this government is building. And I receive them gladly. I receive them gladly because I know the housing is needed, they know the housing is needed, and we are funding that housing. And the students need it. The students need it, the seniors need it, and so many other people need it. This seems like a good opportunity, Honourable Speaker, to provide an update on our 114,000 unit housing plan. Uh, we have 11,000 11, units complete, 10,000 units in active construction, of a total of 35,501 units funded. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Leader of the Third Party. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Yesterday, the White House released a memo on addressing the effects of long COVID, recognizing that anyone who has had a COVID infection can experience long-term and chronic effects from this virus. The United States is creating a federal long COVID program. In this province, there are potentially 83,000 BC residents experiencing symptoms of long COVID. For them, the pandemic is far from over. Long COVID can be severe. A recent peer-reviewed study found that long COVID can cause a spectrum of, of symptoms, including systemic, neuropsychiatric, respiratory, cardiac, gastrointestinal, and endocrine complications. 
Long COVID has been shown to occur after both mild and severe cases of COVID. And while some preliminary literature suggests that vaccinations reduce the incidence of some symptoms, vaccinations have not eliminated the risk of long COVID. Our understanding is still evolving, and all governments have a responsibility to recognize the people who are and will struggle with the effects of long COVID. My question to you, Honourable Speaker, is to the Minister of Health. What responsibility does government have to inform, educate, and support the public when it comes to long COVID? Minister of Health. Thank you. Honourable Speaker, the first, first thing I'd say in response to that question should be obvious to anyone who's reviewed the COVID-19 pandemic anywhere, is the best way to avoid COVID, the best way to avoid serious symptoms of COVID, the best way to avoid long COVID, the best way to survive COVID is to get vaccinated and get vaccinated when you're invited to do so. That is the best way, Honourable Speaker. With respect to long COVID, it is an absolute priority. We know that many people recover differently and do not recover well and have long-term uh, re results and consequences of COVID-19. It's all the more reason why it's important to be vaccinated. It's why we set up the, the Interdisciplinary Clinical Care Network, which is the first of its kind in Canada, to coordinate our response across health authorities to make sure that people get the care they need. Our post-COVID recovery clinics are in place, and they don't just support direct uh, uh, patients at the clinics in the thousands with positive results, but they support primary care providers and health care providers across BC because we've taken those steps. There is more to learn and there is more to do, and BC is leading Canada in that regard and working with everyone in the world to support people who are struggling with COVID-19. Do you draw a third party supplemental? Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Indeed, there is still much more to learn. Um, and in vaccinations absolutely uh, reduce the risk, according to the literature. However, we know that transmission of COVID is happening, even amongst people who are vaccine, vaccinated, and that long COVID remains a risk. Dr. Zach Schwartz is the lead of the post-COVID recovery clinic at Vancouver General Hospital. He recently stated in an interview with CTV that even with clinical support, some patients, quote, seem to have stalled and not recovered. And those patients in that clinic are the lucky few to have made it up to the top of the waiting list. Honourable Speaker, Honourable Speaker, people are grappling with a new illness that has impacted their day-to-day -day lives. Some have lost their livelihoods. They have little information and limited support. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Minister of Health, beyond the COVID post-recovery clinics, which can't serve everybody who in this, this province is suffering from long COVID, what additional supports can the tens of thousands of British Columbians managing long COVID expect from this government? Minister of Health. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Well, first of all, uh, with respect to information, as the member says, talks about information, patients and their caregivers can access, Honourable Speaker, can access the interdisciplinary clinical care networks, online education tools and resources to support themselves as they recover. We have put in place the first in Canada a comprehensive system that supports people across British Columbia. We have post-long uh, COVID clinics for, uh, for people, and anyone who, who has symptoms beyond three months can, uh, can ask to become involved and get support through those processes. Those are in place now. 
We need to have, and it's why it's so important to have a robust primary care network across BC to support people who are dealing with chronic illnesses across the spectrum from, from continuing to suffer the effects of COVID-19 to other chronic diseases such as diabetes, and we have to continue to build that. But I would say this, Honourable Speaker, I can't emphasize it enough that it is important now to get vaccinated. There are 68,000 people over 70 who've been invited to get their booster dose who haven't got it. They need to phone up today. There are more than 450 pharmacies available to give vaccinations today. Last week, there are more than 100,000 unfilled appointments. We can support each other and prevent this as well by getting vaccinated. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, we know this government can move at lightning speed if it suits them, It'd be it an FOI fee to restrict access and being signed off within 15 minutes of legislation, or when it comes to their own pay, especially if it can be retroactive pay raises to the Premier and to the Cabinet. That seems to be moved along very quickly. At least it wasn't backdated, I guess, just retroactive. But when it comes to the people of Lytton, it's been 280 days and they still have no idea when they can go home. Hydro, telephone lines, they're piled up on the streets. No infrastructure repaired. And there is not even hydro or 911 service, Mr. Speaker. And I know the minister will get up and talk about the flood event. I'll remind the minister that flood event happened five months after the fires. It's now been another four months after the flood event and people still deserve action on specific timelines and specific actions that are going to be taken so they know when they can get home. They don't need excuses anymore. To the minister, when will Lytton be rebuilt and when will people have the opportunity to go back to their homes? Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the member for the question. And, and there is a significant amount of work uh, that is underway at, uh, at Lytton. Uh, as the member may well know, the contracts have been awarded for debris removal. Debris removal has started. There has been the assignment of a, 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 an assistant deputy minister to work very closely with the community of Lytton on a full-time basis on the recovery process. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the hydro and the power lines and the power poles, as the member well knows, um, that decision has been made now by the community of Lytton in terms of that replacement. Uh, they were looking at uh, wanting to put those uh, um, um, services underground. Um, the community had a view that that was going to take too long. They have decided uh, to, uh, to put the power poles back up. Uh, that removal will take place. BC Hydro is, place, is going to be paying uh, for the cost of uh, installing those, uh, those poles. Uh, no cost to the residents. Uh, I can also tell you that in terms of the permitting required, uh, we have worked very closely with the insurance industry to ensure that those who are insured, those who have no insurance or who are underinsured will not have to pay for any of the archaeological work, uh, that the permit is held on a single basis so they're not going to have to go through the process individually. Uh, there's a significant, significant amount of work. We're working very closely with the community of Lytton. We all want to see it rebuilt as soon as, 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 as possible, and that work is underway. 
Member for Gambrus North Thompson, supplemental. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And hopefully uh, the Minister and the Cabinet can understand why the residents of Lytton feel that the priority seems to be retroactive pay raises for Cabinet and not their living circumstances. This is very clearly a tale of two different government approaches. In areas that the federal government has taken the lead on recovery and rebuilding, people will be back in their homes as early as the end of this month. In the areas that this provincial government has been working, people still don't even have their debris moved yet. So again, when will the minister have a firm timeline that they commit to so people know not the theoretical work that's being done, but the actual timelines when they can actually get back into the area and actually start working on their own properties and get their homes built, rebuilt and get back to their own lives? Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Um, providing supports to communities isn't theoretical. Ensuring that they've got the supports while a community is being rebuilt is not theoretical, Honourable Speaker. Uh, picking up the permitting process, which they were very much concerned about, and in terms of we're limiting their ability to start that rebuilding process, uh, making sure that they don't have to worry about those costs is not theoretical, Honourable Speaker. The debris cleanup is underway. That is a particularly challenging and new site, and it's unfortunate that the members opposite don't want to recognize that. We worked very closely with, we worked very closely with, the, with the federal government to ensure that those First Nations communities who are in the village of Lytton, for example, which was the part that was most devastated, are going to get rebuilt as well, and the federal government has made that commitment. As I said, we've ensured that the permitting process is being held by one individual, so individuals in the, in the community don't have to go through that process themselves. They don't have to pay that money. That work is underway. And with the removal of the debris, then the rebuilding process is going to start, uh, in a, and, and, and you will start to see the significant uh, um, uh, improvement and the significant rebuilding that uh, everybody wants to see. There's been commitments from the RCMP in terms of rebuilding. There's been medical services provided that are now being serviced out on the, uh, the First Nations community. Canada Post is being installing uh, 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 mail service for communities. All of those things are happening, and they're going to continue to happen until that community is rebuilt. Member for Abbotsford West. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. I was listening carefully uh, yesterday when the Attorney General correctly uh, pointed out the important role that uh, BC's Corps of Prosecutors plays in uh, protecting the safety our, of our communities. He, uh, he referred to the authority he has to issue directions related to uh, general prosecutorial uh, policy, which is uh, something uh, we're clearly going to want to discuss with him in the days ahead. What I didn't hear him uh, refer to is the deplorable state of morale uh, within the prosecution service. Uh, which has been without a contract for three years since the last contract expired in 2019. Now, prosecutors, like everyone else, they saw the ease with which the Premier and Cabinet voted themselves a raise, and they are asking, they are more than curious to know why they have been without a contract for three years and how much longer our communities are going to be relying upon the important work done by the Prosecution Service, who has been without a contract for three years. Attorney General. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Let me start off by uh, thanking 
our hardworking Crown prosecutors for the important work they do. I, I know uh, the opposition and I sometimes agree about that hard work, that it's important, difficult, challenging work, and sometimes uh, I'm not so sure where the opposition stands in terms of the challenge of that job, uh, given the questions that were asked yesterday. Um, let me say to them that I appreciate their work, I appreciate the time they take, uh, the hours they spend, the work they do with victims, the uh, traumatic scenes that they have to hear recounted, the horrific evidence they have to go through in order to prosecute crimes in our courts, and I am incredibly grateful for what they do. Bargaining, as the member knows, he used to be the Minister of Finance uh, for this province, takes place at the bargaining table, and uh, I am sure that uh, government and the Crown will ultimately come to a mutually satisfactory agreement. Member for Abbotsford West, supplemental. Uh, thanks, Honourable Chair. It's been three years. Uh, three years without uh, a contract. And I am told by 30-year veterans of the prosecutorial service that they have never seen morale as bad as is presently uh, the case. So the minister can stand in the House and say things that I think all members would agree with about uh, the importance of the work and the value uh, we place in the work of the prosecution, uh, prosecutors, prosecution service. But where the government really gets to uh, reveal that value is by sitting down and negotiating a contract. Prosecutors had a contract for 12 years that expired in 2019 and they have languished without a contract since that date. Communities want to know that their prosecutors are fully engaged, fully retained, and fully under contract. And that has not been the case for three years. And the one thing I, again, didn't hear from the Attorney General is anything approaching an explanation for why prosecutors have been without a contract for three long years. Attorney General. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Well, it, I'll say it is a pleasure to hear today a different tone from the opposition about the important work of our Crown. I, I agree with the member. Their work is important. It should be recognized, and they should be appropriately compensated. That work is happening at the bargaining table. I have confidence in the public servants uh, that are negotiating that and in the Crown Council Association that they will be able to reach a mutually uh, beneficial agreement that recognizes that important work every single day. Member for West Vancouver, see to Sky. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, the NDP cabinet has uh, found a way to give itself a retroactive pay increase. Speaker. Members. Speaker. Members. The Member reality the here is that transit users in the sea to sky have been without services for over 10 weeks. There is a, a transit dispute. There's a strike that entering its 10th week. This strike is hurting vulnerable people who need to get to work, need to get to medical appointments, need to get to school. People like my constituent, Laura, who says, the transit strike is making an already challenging time more challenging, and we desperately need to get buses back up and running. It's hurting people who are spending thousands of dollars to take cabs to get to work. Uh, a, a constituent wrote to say, I want to share with you that my son called last week crying because he cannot pay his rent. He's spending his wages on taxis. 
People are being forced to walk miles. How much longer will residents have to wait? I have to tell you that the minister, that, that residents up and down the whole Sea to Sky corridor, are, it's long past resolution. And they can't wait any longer as a pawn of provincial labour negotiations. Mr. Speaker, when will the minister step up and help people like Manuela, who are desperate for a return of transit services? Minister of Labour. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and, and I'm fully aware of the situation, Mr. Speaker, and we continue to monitor very, very closely. And I also know that the strike is having uh, uh, an impact on people who are within the Sea-to-Sky Corridor who depend on, on this service, Mr. Speaker. That's why I met with both sides twice now, and I have uh, made it very, very clear on behalf of those transit uh, users that they need to get back to the bargaining table. And after my first meeting, they did go back to the bargaining table, but unfortunately they were not able to conclude uh, the, the bargaining process. And uh, progress was made, I'm told. But again, Mr. Speaker, I want to make it clear that I and uh, this government fully support the, the, the free collective bargaining process. And we must protect the integrity of the free collective bargaining. Any hint of anybody interfering in, in that process, Mr. Speaker, is not useful. So I would ask the member to be very, very careful that to, let's work together to encourage both sides to get back to the bargaining table because the agreement will be found at the bargaining table, not in this chamber, Mr. Speaker, not outside, not in the media. And I'm encouraging both sides. And I, Mr. Speaker, also have met with both mayors, Mayor of Squamish and Mayor of Whistler, and we have discussed the importance of them getting back to the bargaining table, and we will continue to ask those, uh, those, those parties to, 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 uh, to find a way uh, to, to get back to the bargaining table. As late as two days ago, I met with, with them again, Mr. Speaker. So there, therefore, Mr. Speaker, let's protect the integrity of the bargaining table. At the same time, let's encourage those two parties to get back to the bargaining table, because that's where the agreement will be. The bell ends the question period.